Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's episode touches on a pioneering account that sets out to understand the structure of the human brain, the place where mind meets matter. Until recently, the left hemisphere of our brain has been seen as the rational side, the superior partner to the right. But is that distinction true? Drawing on a vast body of experimental research, our guest argues while our left brain makes for a wonderful servant, it is a very poor master. As he shows, it is the right side which is more reliable and insightful. Without it, our world would be mechanistic, stripped of depth, colour and value. We welcome author of The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, Ian McGilchrist. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aidan. What a pleasure to have you on the show. A few months ago, we had Wakas Ahmed on the show, the author of The Polymath. And in his book, he celebrates famous polymaths like Leonardo da Vinci. And besides such great, she mentions your good self. <laughs> and your background is truly spectacular. And it's why this book is so varied and so deep, because you look through such a unique lens. And I find it really poignant that where the left brain has a narrow view of the world, which is characteristic of focused on just one thing, you write from a place of a broad view of multiple disciplines. Well, I've had a checkered career. Uh, <laughs> my interests have taken me all over the place, really, starting in science, then going off into the arts, and then into the classics, and then back through philosophy and theology to medicine. So I've, I, they've taken me all around the houses. I thought a valuable way to begin before we delve into the book is to clear up some popular misconceptions. For example, that the left hemisphere is gritty, rational, realistic, but dull, and the right hemisphere is airy, fairy, and impressionistic, but creative and exciting. And you convey the sheer extent of our dependence on right hemisphere, all of which stands in complete contrast to the view of it as a silent or minor hemisphere. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, in fact, in the book that I'm writing at the moment, which I'm calling The Matter with Things, which is a pun on, on various <laughs> elements, um, I'm, I'm taking that argument further. What couldn't be further from the truth is the idea that the left hemisphere is perhaps a little dull, but at least dependable and reliable and down to earth. It's none of these things. It, it is actually rash, impulsive, jumps to conclusions, doesn't really know a lot of the time what it's talking about. And yet, unfortunately, it's the hemisphere that controls speech. So <laughs> as many wisdom traditions have suggested, the real wisdom is uh, more manifested in what you don't say than in what you do. You brought up language and it's a section which is wonderful in the book. And you talk about the evolution of language and despite the left hemisphere being the language center of the brain, that the right has a huge element. It just doesn't speak the same language as the left. Yes, the right hemisphere is very important in language in several ways. The most obvious one is that it governs pragmatics, which is actually the part of language function, which is what the whole utterance means. So you can imagine a computer having rules of syntax and access to the Oxford English Dictionary and letting it loose. And it could put all this stuff together, but at the end of the day, it wouldn't know what was being said. Uh, the left hemisphere has good procedures in this way, but it doesn't understand human meaning to the extent that the right hemisphere does. For example, it doesn't understand uh, irony or humor 
or sarcasm or m metaphor, which may sound like just one of those interesting little decorations that uh, poets are good at. But actually, as I explain in the book, metaphor is basic, absolutely fundamental to all our understanding. In fact, particularly in science and philosophy, they're very heavily dependent on metaphor. And without it, we couldn't say anything. So all this aspect of indirect understanding, including facial expressions and body language, all that aspect of linguistic meaning is best done, or to a very large extent only done, by the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere is very good at the rules of syntax and has a larger lexicon, but that's about it. You mentioned the way the left hemisphere deals with paradoxes. I love this section of the book. You say... Paradox means literally a finding that is contrary to received opinion or expectation, and that immediately alerts us. Since the purveyor of received opinion and expectation is the left hemisphere, I'd love if you shared this. Yeah. The left hemisphere is uh, no foe to cliché. Uh, it's a great uh, lover of the familiar, the well-worn. Um, the more so, the better. When stuff is fresh and new, then the right hemisphere is the one that engages with it. A very prominent um, American neuroscientist, Elkhorn Gold Goldberg, uh, spent a decade with colleagues looking at the, this difference between the hemispheres, that the right hemisphere takes in the new, in any modality, in language, in, 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 in a new sound, a new action, a new piece of music, whatever it is, it, 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 it is the one that originally takes it in. And then when it's gone, well, okay, uh, I, I've got a hold on it. The left hemisphere, I see what it is. It's one of those. I've got a category for those. I'll put it in there. It puts it in the pigeonhole. End of story. Uh, it shouldn't be the end of story because what the left hemisphere needs to do after having done its pigeonholing is hand the thing back to the right hemisphere to be fully understood in context. The great strength of the right hemisphere is it sees things in context. And that's a very, very important thing. But to come back, to, uh, we, we can talk about that later because we need to. It, it's so central. But, but what, just to pick up on paradox, it struck me, and I write about this a little bit in, in The Master and His Emissary, um, that paradoxes come about when we start seeing the world purely in a left hemisphere sort of way. And then that's contrasted with the right hemisphere's understanding of what's going on, and they don't seem to match. So in the, in the book that I'm now writing, I have two chapters on paradox in which uh, I look at about 30, 30 or more paradoxes, famous paradoxes in logic and demonstrate how they show a conflict between the left hemisphere's approach and the right hemisphere's approach. You bring that further and you talk about confabulation, for example, and how the left will deny things that absolutely make sense, but they don't make sense in a narrow, focused way. Yes, or just don't make sense according to its scheme of how things should be. So it's like somebody who's got a theory about how life is, and when things turn out to be not like the theory, they just deny that the, these findings are right. They, they just can't be that way, because the theory says it's like this. Uh, it's it's quite f uh, phenomenal, really. Um and it's very, very strong. So they will, you know, people with a right hemisphere stroke or with a right hemisphere tumor or just damage to the right hemisphere will deny something 
utterly blatant, as blatant as that they've got a paralysis, okay? So they've got a paralyzed left arm. And they will just deny that there's anything wrong with it at all. And if you force them to look at it, bring it right round in front of them and say, move that. They say, oh, that, 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 that's not my responsibility. It doesn't belong to me. It actually belongs to the bloke in the next bed. <laughs> so, you know, this is, a big, this is a big deal. Denial to this level. And when things don't fit and you just deny their existence, then there's a term for this in neurology, which is you confabulate, you make up a story that has no basis in reality that fits in with your picture and makes it consistent so you don't have to shift your perspective. You can stick with the old one you've got. This actually really spoke to me because in a world of innovation or the need for change within businesses, you have this happening all the time. So you have this selective blindness to the bald-faced facts. You're going to hit an iceberg, but people will confabulate in order to avoid having to make the change. And, of course, you see it everywhere. I mean, I stopped practicing now, but for a long time I used to work in, in hospitals as a doctor. And, and there you see this extraordinary triumph of procedure over reality. So that as long as the right box has been ticked on the piece of paper, um, th th that's, that's it solved, you know, uh, even if in real life there's a massive problem. <laughs> um, I, I have a lovely story about that. Um because a correspondent uh, wrote to me saying that a friend of hers had this experience. She, she, uh, she heard that her brother, who was a miner, had died in a mining accident. And so, of course, she was absolutely devastated. And she, she ran to the hospital. And she was shown into the morgue. And they opened a drawer in the freezer. And there was her brother. It was her brother. And she knelt to bent over to kiss this body and she thought this is a bit funny it's it's kind of warm for a body that's been in the freezer and then she felt his pulse and she could feel a slow pulse but a pulse so she went to the nurse who was standing by who you know has to be in attendance on these occasions and said you know i, I think my brother might just be alive to which the nurse replied in the immortal words don't you worry about that my dear it says quite clearly on this piece of paper that he's dead <laughs> so, <laughs> so not taking this for an answer she ran out into the corridor and grabbed a passing medic who gave her brother intracardiac adrenaline and he lives to this day so there you go wow that's how it happens <laughs> it happens it absolutely does and do you know the other thing this all sparked so and this is where i mean the broad depth of knowledge that you bring to this piece of work brings forth so many thoughts so you make so many connections that spark connections in other people and one of the ones for me was the importance of the language you use if the left is going to reject that language if the left hemisphere rejects certain language such as belief for example and i thought about words like in a corporate monster of an organization you start introducing words like innovation to the left must absolutely reject words like that while then you talk about stuff like reinvention which probably to the left means okay well that means we're not broken entirely and you talked particularly about the word belief and i thought this really really brought it to life oh gosh yes there's a lot to say about the word belief but it, it's had a an interesting history so it starts in roots which are the same as lieben in german to love and still exists in the Shakespearean term, leaf, my leaf lord, meaning the one that I love. So it's about something to which you have an allegiance and which you have a bond with and which you love. 
It's come to mean um, a series of logical propositions that could be taken apart in an Oxford seminar. But that is not what belief is. It's not a series of propositions. It's a matter of a disposition. In other words, a way of being in the world, a way of approaching the world, a way of attending to people and to things such that you experience them in a certain way. And then you start to understand what belief is. In fact, the word credo in, in Latin, and even if you don't know Latin, most people know, well, they know the word creed, for example. Credo comes from a Latin root meaning cordo, I give my heart to you. So you believe, you know, like you believe in your friend. It means he's, he won't let you down. You believe in somebody, meaning you're prepared to, to trust them. And again, trust, interestingly, has a root that again goes back. It's related to truth. Uh, we could we could spend a happy half hour unpicking the etymologies around these words and how they've become <laughs> debased into left hemisphere certainties. See, nothing at all in life is certain. Anybody who's lived a few decades knows that. And none of the important things that give value to life are certain. There's no such thing as blind faith in religion that is certain. There's no such thing as being certain even of the person you love most in all the world. There's no such thing as being certain about what's going to happen two minutes from now, never mind two years from now. And we know from modern physics that, in fact, this is literally the case. It's not just that we don't have enough knowledge. It's that intrinsically we could never have enough knowledge because it's just not certain in itself. So the left hemisphere is all the time trying to close things down to a certainty because it's frightened of losing control. It must be in control. Whereas the right hemisphere is more able to be open and accept that something may happen that is unwelcome, but it's kind of much more as it was grown up about this. It has a much more mature disposition, a more open, accepting disposition, whereas the left hemisphere wants to control everything, to manipulate everything, to make it right. And now, the difficulty with that is not only do you not succeed in making everything right, but you spoil everything in the process. And let me give a very good example, because you've talked a bit about creativity. And I feel very strongly about this, not just because, as you'll know from the second half of my book, where I look at cultural history in the West through all the main aspects of the history of ideas since the ancient Greeks. It's not just the arts that depend on imagination, it's science that depends on imagination and philosophy too. If you look at all the great accounts of discoveries, imaginative discoveries, new truths found by scientists and mathematicians, they almost never come in, I could pretty much stick my neck out and say they never come in the sense that they come after following a certain set of procedures like the scientific method as you find it in a book or a number of equations and ah there we've got the answer they always come by analogous thinking not by serial thinking in other words seeing resemblance between shapes now, this is a very, very important matter because in our educational system, what we largely do is destroy the innate preference that children have up to the age of about seven for looking at 
how things relate in terms of their shapes and replace it by very dull procedures that they learn in class. They must follow this procedure. The trouble with this is that it ensures mediocrity. And many businesses now, I suspect, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking out of my depth here because I, I, I know nothing about the world of commerce. One of the extraordinary things for me is that people in the world of commerce beat a path to my door, but there you are. But <laughs> <laughs> let's lay that, lay that aside. One of the things that they tend increasingly to do, and government does, is to over-control, micromanage, set standards and monitor them. This is love. This is just what the, the left hemisphere loves. It's what it does best, proceduralize and then monitor. Now, if you do that, of course you won't avoid mistakes because wherever there are human beings, there are mistakes, and indeed wherever there are machines, there are colossal mistakes. And when they make mistakes, boy, do they make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> but what it rules out is the possibility of human creativity, which cannot be legislated for, cannot be done by rote. And often people say to me, so what do I do to become more creative? And the answer here is a very right hemisphere one. It's not, well, there are eight bullet points. You do these things. I mean, that's just the death of creativity. It's, well, let's look at what you're doing now and let's try not doing any of those things anymore and see what happens. Because what you're doing at the moment is not working. And I look at it as like you're aiming on letting something flourish. You can't make something by an act of will come into being. You can't do that any more than you can make a river flow. You can dam it or you can let it flow. A gardener can't make a plant grow. A gardener can only optimize the conditions in which the plant, left alone, will flourish. Now, that is what creativity is. It's about not doing hundreds and hundreds of things that we are now doing. And often, the actual process involves literally throwing things away, cutting things out. The example I like to give is that of Michelangelo's late sculptures. They're unfinished and you can actually see the vibrancy, the vitality of the figure almost sort of forcing its way out of the stone. That statue was never going to be put together from bits. It was there and it just had to be revealed. And Ian, you say here that just as the right and left hemispheres are crucially involved in reason and just as they are in language, they're also in creativity. And there you mentioned some of the challenges of creativity, but what is the optimum method of right and left hemisphere working together? Well, it's interesting. Um, it's quite true that the left hemisphere does play a role in creativity, absolutely. But it plays a different role and at a different stage in the process. So, for example, you might be very interested in a certain area. And what you'll have to do is a lot of just acquainting yourself with the facts. Um, and you'll have to do some hard slog that doesn't seem at all creative, just getting familiar with the stuff of the area you're working in. But then you mustn't overstretch this notion of being in control of what's going on. There need to be times when you put it aside. And it's in those times when you're not actively trying to do something that if it's going to come, it will come. It doesn't guarantee that anything will happen. Nothing at all may happen. But it certainly won't happen if you keep making the effort for it to happen. And once the idea has come to you, it then may require a lot of rather routine work at which the left hemisphere is adept. 
A quite a good example of this is Dyson, Dyson Hoover and, and all those uh, inventions. He had an, a sudden thought that which probably nobody else would ever have thought of, that the way to, to make a good hoover was to use um, a system that operated in sawmills. So he made this extraordinary connection, and he had the idea for what became the Dyson Hoover. And he then had, I think he says, over 1,500 attempts at making it. <laughs> so there was a lot of very routine slog at that stage. But it, the idea never came from the routine slog. If you look at the great creative figures in, in the history of the arts, you look at Mozart and, and Bach and so on. It's been argued by some people somewhat perversely that they had a sort of mechanical way of composition. But uh, frankly, I can I can and do in the book uh, at some length demonstrate that that's blatantly false. So in fact, what happens is you need to put yourself in the way of something happening. It's rather like trying to go to sleep. You can't force yourself to sleep. In fact, the more you force yourself to sleep, the less you'll sleep. But there is such a thing as putting yourself in the way of sleeping or putting yourself in the way of definitely not sleeping. So turning on loud music and drinking three, three cups of coffee on the, on the go is not going to help you sleep. And it's like you know meeting somebody that you're going to marry. You can't make that happen. You don't know where that's going to happen. But if you just um, sit at home and never go out, you'll never put yourself in the way of meeting her. So you know what I mean? There's, that is what creativity is like. It's, it's putting yourself in the way of something coming into being for you. And again, linking this back to what you said about education or even childhood or even what we do with children now, forcing them into singular disciplines early is the wrong approach because they need to discover, they need to go broad and make those connections for themselves because that's almost a lens through which they'll see the world going forward. And I'm going to bring this back to the brain again because you remind us that Freud believed that the brain not merely mediated our experiences but shaped them too. And you say the brain is not just a tool for grappling with the world, it's what brings the world about. And so the structure of the brain reflects its history as an evolving dynamic system in which one part evolves out of and in response to another. And this made me reframe how I thought of the brain because I saw it as a lens through which to view, but also as a transmitter and a receiver of energy and vibration, which keeps changing the lens. Absolutely. And what's really key here is that the the reframing that goes on when you think like that, and when you see that it's a, a a dynamic system that has responded to change, is that you see it as a process, and this is very very important for me, is that we should see all things as processes, not as static objects. You see, the trouble with the word thing is. Oh, I won't go into all the etymology, but originally it meant a meeting in which people... <laughs> go for it, man, yeah, go for it, yeah. so, so go for it. Originally a thing was a meeting in which people discussed points of view. It wasn't an object that was complete, finished, and ended. It was a process, which is interesting. But now, of course, it, it, we tend to think of a thing as you know a process. But right behind my house, there is the biggest thing you know, that I've ever seen. And well, not the biggest I've ever seen, but certainly the oldest I've ever seen, because it's one of the oldest pieces of rock in the earth. And it towers over my house 
but it's actually moving towards my house. It's a wave that started moving billions of years ago. And if we had a time-lapse camera going back billions of years and going forward billions of years, we'd see it moving towards the house and overwhelming it. <laughs> I haven't informed my insurance company, by the way, but uh, so what I'm trying to we, get... We'll edit this out. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that everything that we see is actually an arrested moment in a process. And that... The brain is one of these very dynamic, very plastic processes. I mean, it literally is in that every single thing you do sculpts your brain. Every experience you have, every decision you make subtly alters the structure of your brain, very microscopically, very in very tiny ways. But over time, it begins to shape what connections the brain makes and therefore what it um, prioritizes and, and so forth. So our brain is constantly reacting to whatever it is out there, and whatever it is out there is being molded by our brains. There's a reciprocal dialogue going on. And what I was really pointing to was that in the brain, the need to be, as they are in any system, harmonies between opposing elements. There needs to be balance. And a balance is never a static thing. A balance is dynamic. Think of a tightrope. A tightrope walker would fall off it if you immobilize the tightrope. It needs to move in order to be something on which you can balance. And I think it's very important that when we find a balance point, it's not some boring passive middle point between two extremes. It's if you like to imagine a string that is being pulled taut by enormous power being exerted on it in both directions at once. And that produces something living, not just a slack string, but as it were, the string of a bow, both the string of the bow of a violin and the string of a bow that will shoot an animal. So it has vibrancy in it, it has life in it through this tension. Um, so what I was, <laughs> to come back to the brain, um, there need to be these balances, and historically there have been, between the lower part of the brain and the upper part of the brain. Also between the front of the brain and the back of the brain. So the frontal lobes of the brain, about which most people have heard people speak, um, they're not, by the way, just some little part at the, you know, just behind your forehead, above your eyes or something. They stretch a long way back in your head and are, in fact, about 38% of your entire brain. So they're pretty important. And the main thing about them is they stop things happening uh, to go back to our you know, creative negativity point. They actually exist in order to inhibit what is going on in the posterior parts of the same hemisphere. And then, of course, you've got the checks and balances of the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, which forms the subject of my book. So it was really to see that there are these dynamic forces, all of which need to be taken into account, all of which have their meaning and their uses, and which I explore to some extent in that book and even further in my current work. And that idea of the counter forces, so the right and left hemisphere are in this power struggle, but that power struggle is positive if it's pretty much balanced. This is the feeling I'm getting from it. And I saw you talking with Jordan Peterson on YouTube before, and you were talking about this idea of left and right and chaos and order. And if you think about the business environment today, the business environment is quite chaotic. Yes. And many crystallized organizations, crystallized in a very left, lateralized way of thinking, are struggling with the new chaos. 
and and everything tends towards chaos. So you need to be prepared for this. This is one of the things I really got from the book was in a turbulent business environment where innovation is craved for, or so we think it is, even the innovation is seen in a left dominant way. And therefore, it's been limited too much. I can easily see that. In fact, as I was saying, there's a tendency to go, so what do we do to be creative, <laughs> which is which is a very uncreative thing to do. But I suppose what I would say about there being a war on is this. There is a fruitful tension, and you can turn it into a war if you look at it in a certain way. And unfortunately, the right and the left hemispheres differ in their attitude to everything, including their relationship. So the right hemisphere sees the relationship not as a war, but as a fruitful partnership. But the left hemisphere sees it as a struggle, a power struggle, because its main uh, raison d'etre is power. It exists for power. It is the the instantiation of the rather crass drive towards simple control. And if you think about it, it's the part of the brain that controls the right hand, which enables us to grasp things and controls not all of language, but the bits of language whereby we say, oh, I've grasped that, which essentially means I've got it into one of those left hemisphere pigeonholes. Now I don't have to worry about it too much. Uh, Not having grasped things is actually often a very fruitful state to remain in. Um, not, Not closing down the conversation to, oh, I think I've got what you're on about, instead of listening to, no, you possibly haven't got what I'm on about. So there's a difference between a war and a fruitful relationship. And this is imaged in the title of my book, The Master and His Emissary, which perhaps I should briefly allude to. Um, it's, it's based on a, on a hint I got out of Nietzsche, and I now can't find where. But the idea is this. Uh, it's a bit like the story of the master, the sorcerer's apprentice, that the, there's a sort of wise master who understands how to look after a spiritual community. But he also realizes after this community flourishes and grows under his supervision that there are things he mustn't get involved in. Not only that he can't get involved in because now there's just too much to do, but actually that he must avoid getting involved in if he's to keep his very important overview of what's going on. And so he delegates um, a bright second in command to go on his behalf and do a lot of the, as it were, administrative work which is what the left hemisphere excels at. And this delegate, as it were, is quite bright, but not bright enough to know what it is he doesn't know. And, you know, I always think that Rumsfeld may have said some very stupid things, but it's very unfair that he's vilified for having said one really highly intelligent thing, which is it's the unknown unknowns that really get you in the end. (laughs) So this hemisphere doesn't know what it is it doesn't know and therefore thinks he knows more than the master and therefore usurps the master pretends to be the master doesn't just report back to the master who'd be able to use that valuable information in the in a context of the whole picture and as a result being controlled by a petty bureaucrat the place falls apart now that is happening all around us the mindset of the petty bureaucrat the rule bound the algorithmic is taking over from the person with insight with patience dare i say it wisdom which comes from a degree of self-discipline as well as just letting it all hang out i mean i'm not a great fan of just letting it all hang out creativity is a discipline as well as an undiscipline there is a need for chaos and there is a need for order 
too much order and you fossilize, too much chaos and you fall apart. So these things are always in a fruitful harmony. There is nothing so good that more and more and more of it is always better. I wish we'd remember that these days. And there's nothing so bad, by the way, that a bit of it might not turn out to have its uses. So we tend to think in terribly black and white terms that this value, this goal is always good. This value, this goal is always bad. I want to problematize that and say I, I, can't, I can't accept that, that that is the case. And if you, if you carry on thinking like that, you will end up um, in a very left hemisphere a way following just a linear path, whereas we need always to be balancing things, listening to responses. Relationships are always reverberative. They're two-way. They're never one way. You can never affect anything, anything at all in the world without it affecting you. Even attending to it changes what it is, and when it changes, that change affects you. So you need to be careful how you attend to things. For example, if you if you attend, if you're a doctor and you're trained that your patient is a very efficient mechanism that has evolved in this way over you know hundreds of thousands of years, and that it can be seen exactly like uh, any piece of machinery that we have and repaired in this way and so on, um, you will begin to see people, whether you like it or not, as you know, somewhat like machines. Um, you may make a distinction to begin with between them and the computer in the office, but after a while, the lines start to get blurred, and that affects you because you then don't get from a human being what a human being is there to give you, and you go to a machine for it instead, and you soon find that the world ceases to have much meaning. So we get into very dark and difficult places by misattending to the world. And there isn't a formula for doing this right. The key thing is to ask yourself what it is that your way of thinking at the moment is stopping you from seeing. Yeah, I love that. You're sending me down all types of rabbit holes here mentally. And one of them is when you're talking about that, say, the left dominant approach to the world, that real mechanistic approach to the word, mechanical approach to the world. I thought about artificial intelligence and the way it's been programmed. So you talk a lot about bias in the book and, and essentially bias, some of it's there to protect us, some of it's not useful and we need to reevaluate it all the time. But one thing dawned on me was that if we're increasingly handing over locus of control and decision-making tasks to machines and programming them that way, we're programmed not only with bias, but also with left dominant bias and they're already going to be mechanistic anyway. So that's a very, very dangerous way to go. It is. Uh, it's one of the three or four most important worrying things at the moment, top of the list being whether there'll be um, an inhabitable planet here in 50 years for us to be having these sort of conversations on. But I am extremely worried by that development because effectively artificial intelligence, which I think is a, a misnomer, um, it's really the externalization of the left hemisphere's way of thinking, which is not a particularly intelligent one, and in fact gets in the way of human intelligence. Uh, but it's an externalization of that, and that is just what we need to be able to step beyond. Um, 
<laughs> there's so much that our brains understand that a machine can't in the nature of things understand because it isn't a person. I've, I've been doing a lot of research in the last 10 years in uh, just the very basic stuff, like how good is each hemisphere at taking in the world out there, just taking it in and making any kind of sense of it at all. And I think there are the main areas there might be attention, perception, both of which are bound up with judgment because you never perceive something without making some kind of a judgment about what it is that you're seeing. So attention, perception, your capacity to form a judgment on what it is you're attending to and perceiving, and intelligence, both social and emotional intelligence, which is a lot more sophisticated than it may sound. And cognitive intelligence, just good old-fashioned IQ. And to cut a long story short, the right hemisphere is obviously superior in every one of these respects and in some massively so it comes to some people as a surprise they think well the left hemisphere must surely be the one that enables us to be the intelligent rational beings that we are but it isn't any more than a computer is really intelligent it doesn't actually understand anything uh, what it does is process uh, it carries out procedures very fast, just a hell of a lot faster than, than we do, uh, and a lot less economically because it doesn't know how to cut out ones that are not going to lead anywhere. But good old-fashioned IQ is vastly more dependent on the right hemisphere than the left. There's a fabulous study, 2014, by Barbie et al., um, and they looked at, I think, 128 people who had had intelligence tests before and after a stroke. Uh, and they looked at where the stroke was and what the impact on intelligence was. And effectively, all the areas that light up as being critical, where there's been a significant drop in intelligence in the right hemisphere, hardly a thing in the left, which is really interesting. Now, on top of that, the right hemisphere is absolutely the one that understands emotional and social intelligence. Um, you know, the right hemisphere is the one that can enable you to understand the subtleties of a conversation, both what is being said, what is being implied, what is not being said, um, where this ramifies to. The left hemisphere is busy plodding along like a very sort of unsophisticated learner. Um, in this realm, making all jumping deductions which show that it doesn't really understand how human beings think or how they feel. And thinking and feeling can't be separated. Thinking and feeling are aspects of one and the same process. I thought about that from a language learning perspective. And I was thinking, I learned French, for example, I did French and German in college. And when you learn it in college, you learn it very mechanistically, you learn it broken down in really left brain way. So it's like learn your verbs, learn the way the words work independently. And it wasn't until I lived there that I actually learned and I thought about this when I was reading your book and I was like, going, it's really like the right brain integrates into the society and picks up all the nuances of language and connects the dots between all the left brain little elements of facts of pieces that are really deductible can be listed down really logical. 
it's like an integration of your brain. And that's why the only way to learn a language is actually spend time in that culture. I'm sure you're right that it's the best if you can. But I'd just like to say there's nothing wrong with learning the rules. And in many things, there's a bit of slog that has to be done in the early stages. The mistake is to expect that that will take you all the way or to expect that it's the most important part. But it can be a great help. I mean, for example, not knowing your times tables makes it very hard to do maths, um, unless you're going to rely on a calculator, which seems to me uh, part of the whole rather... uh, Another thing we might talk about one time, um, outsourcing one's intellectual capacities, which has its upside and its downsides. But you're right that really one only learns it by immersion. But the analogy I would make is that you become a really proficient linguist if you also learn the rules. I I know a couple of non-English people who have lived in England, but also learnt English first at school. And their English is so beautiful, it's so immaculate, that it's actually better than the English spoken by most English people. (laughs) And that's probably because they have thought a lot about it in a sort of technical way as well. The the analogy that springs to mind for me is of learning a piece of music. If you you play an instrument, say you play the piano, you, you like a certain piece, and you're attracted to it. So as a whole, you're attracted to it, you feel you understand it, that's the right hemisphere in play. You then begin to try and play it, and you find that you keep on making mistakes at bar 18, you need to go over the finger there, fingering there, and then you see that at bar 52, there's a return to the tonic or whatever it is. So you begin to make sense of it, you produce a more polished performance. But when you go on stage to deliver, all that has to go out of your mind. Uh, it's not that the time was wasted, it had its moment, as it were, but it's, its moment is not now when you're performing. So in that sense, the two hemispheres... Um, they, they work together. And in language, they should do this too. So um, as it were, the, the, the left hemisphere helps to form up something that comes, our original thinking, there's some beautiful research on this uh, coming out of Chicago in the 1990s on where we can identify where the, as it were, our thoughts begin in a global holistic way somewhere in the right hemisphere. They then get sort of processed by the left hemisphere into serial sentences. But then the whole thing gets taken up again by the right hemisphere into a new hole in which it can be understood. And so there's this, again, this passing of something from right to left and back again, like in the piece of music. And in a way, this is how we should be working with the two together, but not with the left hemisphere ever being the the master, as I think I say somewhere, it makes a very good servant, but it makes a very poor master. And at the moment, we live in a world where we're making it the master, and it doesn't know what it's doing. But we haven't got time to to waste while the emissary gets it wrong. We really need to invite the master back quickly. It reminded me of one of those movies where the twist is at the end and the character you thought was the hero is actually the villain and the other way around. The book kind of leads it that way and and you you bring us brilliantly to that point. But it reminded me of a show we did with a great author called Anne Janzer and Anne is a writer and she teaches people to write. And she talked about the brain in a writing process in two modes that I think you'd love, which is she talked about the scribe and the muse. Yes. And she said when the muse gets an idea, it needs to go into free flow writing 
not letting the scribe take over because the scribe will kind of be judging it and going, oh, no, that's the wrong word to use. Use this word and don't write so many words. No, they won't like that. And it starts judging it. Well, exactly. the muse needs to be left in muse zone. Exactly. And, and I can tell you as a writer, <laughs> I know that only too well. <laughs> it's deadly. You, you have to speak to parts of yourself and give them permission at different times. Is the trick there, Ian, like you said about creativity, you need to create the environment or you prepare the soil the same way for even your writing or any, any feats of creativity on your own? Yes, my own life has followed very much that course. I kind of knew in my teens that there was something very big which had a lot of the shape of what I'm now writing about in it. I knew nothing about the brain in those days, or very little. Um, but I spent a lot of time studying things that never really issued in papers. You know, if I'd had a more conventional career, uh, certainly nowadays, in those days there was... I think a very benign feeling that if you were really on to something, you should be allowed to get on with it and, and not constantly, where's your next paper? You know, we, we, you haven't published one for three months. I mean, if I'd been in the, that and not allowed to range over a vast array of different subjects, um, I mean, of course, the payoff of that is that I, as it were, jack of all trades and, and master of none. But I would never have been able to bring together the insights that I think I'm able to from the different areas in which I've worked. And I, I'm very, very grateful now for the fallow times when I wasn't forced to make myself produce stuff. And I must say, at a certain point, I thought, well, I'm just going to die never having written that book. You know, I, I'm 50, whatever, and this book is just not happening. And I actually went into therapy, you know, to find out why am I not writing this book that's in my head and I really want to write it. And I I don't know. I never found out. But the answer is I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, the emissary was holding so, you back. Yeah. That emissary was in there. It was going, don't write this book. <laughs> don't write this. Don't show me up. <laughs> yeah, don't show me up. Judging <laughs> you. <laughs> There's one part here. We talked about how it's reciprocal, the world and what you see and the experience you have and changing your lens, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. there's a quote I, I use the whole time in innovation, and it's the Heraclitus quote, 544 BC, which mm. absolutely describes it brilliantly. I'd love if you quoted that piece and also took us through that journey. He is said to have said, one can never step into the same river twice. Yeah, he certainly did say all things flow. And uh, I thought you were going to quote those who love wisdom must investigate many things indeed. Beautiful. But uh, yes, the, the flow thing is essential to me because uh, one of the problems about imagining that there's a world of things is that we believe that somehow we have to animate it. We have to connect those things and make them move in a direction of our choosing. Um, much as if we were making a, a machine from the parts, you know, like a Meccano set. But the world is not like that because there are no things separate from the whole in which they inhere. In fact, I, I was going to call my new book, There Are No Things, but people pointed out to me that that might make me sound like one of those rather tedious postmodernists who just say, oh, we all make it up in our heads, which I don't believe. You know, I do believe there's a reality, <laughs> uh, which isn't to say that there's just a naive idea there's reality out there and it's our job to, to find it. We partake in that reality. 
what we do in finding it changes what it is we find. So I'm certainly not saying that, but there is something for us to connect with, that's for sure. And whatever that is, is constantly changing and flowing. And an image that I really like, and I use a lot in the book, is one that is both in ancient philosophers, so uh, Democritus, who in many ways was the antithesis of Heraclitus. Heraclitus said all things flow, um, and that he was the great believer in the continuity of everything. Uh, Democritus was the person who started the rot with the idea that the world is made up of atoms, you know, separate little bits. <laughs> um, but even Democritus said that um, the becoming of all things uh, lies in the vortex. And the idea of this vortex is very important. might not sound it, but uh, one of the things I think is important, I'm just writing a piece for the Literary Review on shapes and how important they are. I think we've got the wrong shapes in our head, but the vortex might be a good one. And the idea there is of, a, of an eddy in a river or a whirlpool in a river. And while it lasts, a, 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 an eddy or a whirlpool can be photographed. It's definitely there. It has power. It can suck things in. It can, it's, it's palpably existing there, but it isn't separate from the water. It isn't in the water because it is the water at that point, at that time. And I think that what we call things, and indeed what we ourselves are, are, if you like, um, vortices, eddies within the larger business of the the ever-changing, ever-creative flow that come into being for a time, not separately from all the rest of things, but are those things for a while. And then we give the form back to the flow and something else becomes the eddy or the vortex. And so this process is, is continuous and seamless. To me, it, it seems rather beautiful because it gets over the problem of which is an ancient problem in all traditions in east and west of you know the one versus the many and again it's not either there is one or there is many it's not either or the left hemisphere thinks it's got to be either or it's got to be either this or that the right hemisphere is always going but what would happen if it were both and and the trouble with our logical tradition in the West is we think we've got to make a decision for one or the other and have a fight with somebody over it. No, you're wrong. There aren't many. There's only one and so on and so forth. But the reality is that both of these are true simultaneously. And what we need to be focusing on is not resolving that difference, but finding a philosophical framework in which we can accommodate the fact that both may be true. Now, that's a deeply important idea that can be taken back into every part of our lives, that it may be that when we're rejecting a position, you know, there's something in it that we need to be taking on board in our position, and it may not be either or, but both and. Not in some sort of flabby way, but as I was saying, not like letting the string go slack, but in having a tension in it, which which embodies a force, which can propel an arrow or, 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 or make music, you know, let the music fly out from the, the note of the, the, the taut string of the lyre. So these are, yeah, these are the images that I think we've lost. These are the images, these are the ideas of movement and connection that I think we need to 
to to restore to our thinking not the atomistic way that we're just competitive fragments i mean even the biological story there is wrong it is true that there is competition in nature it is also true that there is massive cooperation in nature and in fact no successful species would have got anywhere without vast cooperation if you think about it your body is historically uh, it contains some 36 trillion cells but those are historically all separate individual cells like bacteria that decided to club together and they commit suicide in order to keep you going. <laughs> it is a true uh, social um, organization in which each part benefits from the whole and the whole benefits from each part. It's fantastic. And in your gut, there's another, I think, 32 trillion bacteria without which you couldn't live. And they live there harmoniously with you. It's all a matter of interdependence. It's never about the war of all on, on all, you know, which is how things are put across these days. It's never going to be like that. There's so much in there. I mean, there's a principle in innovation, which is basically that innovation happens at the intersections. So much like you with the the polymathic skills that you have, the intersection of all the disciplines and the experiences you've had have given birth to this book. And it's the same for any innovation in life. This is why Wakas Med celebrates those polymaths, because the intersection of their disciplines is where the beauty comes from. And I love that idea of tension, because again, disruption in business comes from managing tensions. So the old and the new and the chaos and the order, bringing them together. To, and I love the way you put this. You've put that image in my head for eternity is the image of the taut bow propelling the arrow and creating something new. I love that concept. But one thing dawned on me, and I was thinking about how even this conversation now will change my view of the world and every experience that you have changes how you see the world. And I thought of, there's a quote by Wayne Dyer, and he said that change what you see and what you see changes. And I thought about this when I was reading your book, and it may makes even more sense to me now that where our attention goes influences how we experience the world. So if I see, seek out positive experiences or if I'm a positive person, my life is going to be more positive. So not only the experiences I have will impact future experiences, but where I place my attention will also shape all of those experiences. And you put it beautifully where you say, supported by your background in philosophy, attention absolutely changes the world. Yes, it's a mantra of mine, attention changes the world. And you can think of it in a very homely sense, as well as a more philosophical one. For example, working with patients, I know that, and I just from my own experience, come on, um, that on a certain day, the same set of circumstances will look diabolical. And another day, it doesn't look like this at all. You feel completely different about it. And you go, well, actually, what has changed? Have I suddenly heard something, seen something, known something I didn't know yesterday? No, you're attending to the world in a different frame of mind. And that changes it. And, and at a slightly more philosophical, but I hope concrete level. I like to use, again, because it's very much in my presence all the time, the image of this mountain behind my house, because it's very easy to, to see the reality of how attention changes the world. When it's not attended to by anybody at all, we don't know what it is. We wouldn't know how to describe it. But 
when it's attended to, it becomes all kinds of different things. From its name, which in Norse means sloping rock, we know that once upon a time, about a thousand years ago, it was a landmark for sailors who were coming down from Scandinavia, the Norsemen, because this is a treacherous bay here, and that sloping outline of the mountain meant danger or safety if they didn't recognize it. So that's what that mountain was for them, a landmark. Then we know from Picts, who were there a thousand years before them, because their dwellings are still there, that it was a shelter from the, the elements and it was the home of the gods. And then we know in the 18th century, people came here to sketch it and paint it. So the mountain was a, a many textured form of beautiful colors. Then in the 19th century, they came here to look at its geology, because it happens to be a staggering example of columnar basalt. Um, so for them, that's what it was. To a physicist, it's 99.99% space and 0.01% of something. We don't know what it is. Now, each of those is a real description of the mountain, which is the real mountain. There is no real mountain apart from all the different ways it can be attended to. And if you say to me, oh, well, come on, you know what it really is. It's just a lump of rock. That's not to view it in some kind of magically superior way. It's just its own attitude. It's full of its own attentional problems that you see there only a lump of rock. So everything is what it is, not just seems to be what it is when we attend to it differently. And it feeds back to us because that's what we're connected to. As I was saying, be careful how you attend because you create the world that then helps create you. Yeah, and I absolutely love this. And this is the huge overriding principle of the book as well, is that that's what's manifesting in our society. So the seemingly world of chaotic, chaotic world that we have today is because our attention is mainly lateralized to the left and manifesting that way in society. It seems to me that that's right, that we can see all around us manifestations of this way of thinking. You know, in the book I've described, you know, perhaps 15, 20 different aspects of left hemisphere style thinking. And you can just see evidence of it all around you. Um, and this seems to me a bit of a worry because it tends to, another feature it has is part of it's not knowing what it's missing. It's not being able to know what it doesn't know is that it tends to lock in to the same position. So we customarily talk about positive and negative feedback systems. In physics, a negative feedback system is something like a, a thermostat. When the temperature goes too high, it then drops the temperature again and restabilizes. That's negative feedback. Positive feedback is when the temperature goes up and it makes the temperature go even higher and you get into like what we fear may happen to the climate. So the left hemisphere tends, rather than correct, the right hemisphere is going, well, maybe we need to see something else here. The left hemisphere is going, no, no, I've got it. Just more of the same is what we need. We're just not wow. doing enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not able to see outside of its own hall of mirrors. I call it the hall of mirrors, you know, because it's got, it's all, it's got it all sewn up internally. It's got its own theory about how the world works. And as far as it's concerned, that must be how it is, because it's not much interesting in looking out attentively, openly to the world to see what else there might be there. Now, in the past, my view is, there were plenty of ways in which 
other things than just our rather simple-minded mechanical schema would have been presented to us. One of us is simply through relentless daily contact with nature, with the natural world, which looks nothing like a machine. And one's dialogue, if you like, with that surrounding being would make one realize there's more here than just this mechanistic thing. And then there was art, which I think in the past was more powerful and metaphorical, has become rather cerebral and rather minimal in its impact nowadays. Um, I think that we, we've misunderstood mis, um, the body so that we think of it rather as something we inhabit, which we need to tune up, like it's a very nice sports car with a good sound system, rather than seeing it as something which is an aspect of us, which is, you know, inseparable from whatever it is we call our mental or spiritual life, that, that, that these things are all bound up together. We're amphibious beings. You know, and there again, through the body, we would experience things that are not just the same as our little mental schema would tell us that they are. You know, nowadays, we're over-rationalizing what a human being is like um, because we can write down the scheme. They should be like this. They should behave like that. They should be equal in this way. And they never are. And then we're puzzled. But if we actually listen to our intuitions, to our bodies, to our culture, to nature, to any of these things, we'd see it's more complicated than that. Not that our ideas are necessarily wrong, but they need to become more subtle, more sophisticated, more three-dimensional. Ian, you mentioned handedness. The 89, the 11% and the 5% of the 11%. And you tell us it's only the third group who may be truly different in their cerebral organization, a subset of left-handers, as well as some people with other conditions, irrespective of handedness, such as probably schizophrenia, dyslexia, and possibly conditions such as schizotypy, some forms of autism, Asperger's syndrome, and savant conditions who may have a partial inversion of the standard pattern leading to brain functions being lateralized in unconventional combinations. And I thought this part was fascinating. For them, the normal partitioning of functions breaks down. This may confer special benefits or lead to disadvantages in carrying out other activities. And there's a lot in there, but I thought in this world where thankfully there's being more of an open approach towards neurodiversity within organizations and globally, it kind of exposes that the way these people have been treated in the past is not that they're broken, but the world being lateralized to the left has treated them like they're broken or like they're real outsiders. And thankfully, we're getting some white light or white smoke that this is changing. Yes, yes. Well, one of the things I reflect on is that when I was young, there were quite a lot of people who had stammers. There are relatively few young people now who seem to. Um, and for a while, neurologists said it had nothing to do with being forced to um, change your handedness. But um, it seems it quite possibly is to do with that. So in the past, people who were left-handers were forced to write with their right hand. Sometimes their left hand was tied up so that they had to. Um, and thank God we don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, but yes, I think that... What I'm really saying is that abnormal lateralization can lead to special talents or special deficits. And people with um, left-handedness are overrepresented at the top and at the bottom of most spectra of ability, including physical ability and, and various 
types of cognitive ability. So that is interesting in itself. Um, and I spent some time at Johns Hopkins in uh, Baltimore back in the 90s researching on abnormal asymmetry in the brains of people with schizophrenia. You see, what struck me was that there seemed to be more left-handers amongst people with schizophrenia. Um, and when you come to look at the way the brain is structured, the, as it were, normal brain is uh, predictably asymmetrical in a way that it, we, we understand and know, i.e. it will be larger on the right side at the front and larger on the left side at the back, putting it very crudely. But in schizophrenia, that is sometimes reversed or all asymmetry is lost. And that's not um, usually conducive um, to thriving. So it seems that the normal abnormalities of, or the normal asymmetry is, if, if I can say that, is, is crucial for um, the, the normal development uh, of abilities. But when people have some abnormality in this process, it can give rise to them seeing things in different ways, um, putting together things that other people wouldn't. And so it, it, we must be prepared for some of them not to do very well at many of uh, uh, these activities, but perhaps to excel at some of them. And it takes all thoughts in this world, so we shouldn't prejudge the case. One of the most fascinating things is, is Savon, um, who are people who, uh, generally speaking, have really quite a low IQ. Um, but have an exceptional ability to do certain kinds of calculation and have extraordinary memory for figures usually, um, but uh, not necessarily only for figures. And th these uh, abilities in certain cases have come on after damage to the left hemisphere. Now, that is really fascinating. So up until the person had a head injury, they hadn't got these abilities. After the head injury, they did. Uh, I'm not going to jump <laughs> to any conclusions here, but it's, it's certainly what very What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, another thing that, that's, that's very interesting is some research um, done in um, Sydney uh, on suppressing one hemisphere at a time, which is actually a very useful tool for a lot of hemisphere research. You can temporarily and painlessly suppress one of the hemispheres for a period of, say, 20 minutes, um, and then get the person to carry out certain tasks. And it seems that people with the uh, left hemisphere, left frontal lobe suppressed, and or the right frontal lobe stimulated, but essentially with the, um, uh, the balance being tipped very strongly in favor of the right hemisphere, they're much better able to solve problems that require what you might call lateral thinking. You mentioned earlier on frontal expansion and prefrontal cortex, and this is core to how we got here. And, and I thought of actually what you said about a good farmer doesn't make crops grow, prepares prepares the soil for the crops to grow, or the conditions for crops to grow. I thought about how this has happened to us. So yes, yes. At, at a brain structure or an evolutionary perspective, what happened was 
our prefrontal cortex or the frontal expansion of our brain happened. And you mentioned the prefrontal cortex of a dog represents only 7% and 17% in lesser apes, while the great apes and us humans represent a prefrontal cortex of 35%, which gives us a unique way to respond with the world rather than just simply react like most animals do. And most importantly, it gives us distance. And you say the defining features of the human condition can all be traced to our ability to stand back from the world, from ourselves, and from the immediacy of experiences, because this enables us to plan, to think flexibly and in inventively, and in brief, to take control of the world around us rather than simply responding to it passively. This distance, this ability to rise above the world in which we live, has been made possible by the evolution of the frontal lobes. I think that's a beautiful way to introduce this for you because this has been one of the ways we changed. Yes, indeed. I mean, I should just briefly say that uh, I got some of those percentages slightly wrong. I've corrected them in, in my new book, but uh, but broadly speaking, the the idea is right that um, that it is vastly increased in the great apes uh, and in ourselves, particularly. So yes. Um, the, 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 the really striking thing is that most of this enormous increase in capacity comes from inhibition. Um, and, you know, this, this it, it excites me because, you know, one of the things that got me thinking, even when I was a medical student, about the relationship with the, between the hemispheres was learning that not only do only 2% of the neurons in the brain actually cross to the other hemisphere, but that a lot of that traffic is inhibitory in its end product. It, uh, even if it's excitatory in the short term, it terminates on inhibitory into neurons, which are basically telling areas of the other hemisphere, keep out of this, which, you know, is really interesting. So, and it really lies behind the, the, the central puzzle, you know, for me, is why would you separate two parts of a network that depends on communication? Uh, there's a very important and interesting question with, I think, a very important and interesting answer. And one of the things about the human brain is that it has more inhibitory neurons than any other kind of animal's brain. Primates have more inhibitory neurons than other mammals, and humans have more than any other primate. Um, and that's fascinating. So inhibition is vastly creative and stopping the immediate reaction and standing back and looking at something is how we understand it. So being at an optimal distance from it, when you're too close to something, you don't properly connect to it actually. Uh, it, it, the example I give is is reading a book. You know, if it's too close to your nose, you can't read it. If it's too far away, you can't read it. There is an optimal distance. But this is actually true in a deeper way about life. It's true, for example, about our relationships with one another. A healthy relationship, a loving couple's relationship, is not one in which the two parties are fused, nor is it one in which the two are so distinct and separate that they hardly ever meet. But they're two, it's a relationship in which their coming together enhances rather than diminishes their individuality in such a way that goes back into enhancing and enriching the relationship. And so ideally, 
the way in which the brain works is in this way. It, uh, our understanding of the world is like this, that so we shouldn't be too distant from it, but we shouldn't be just immersed in it. We need to be able to go, oh, if I just stand back a little, I can see a bigger picture here. And also if I take a bit of time, because you can see the analogy of this is what you might call deep time, as this depth of space, this depth of time. And we don't give things depth of time anymore. One of the most fruitful things we can do is to stop doing and to spend slow time with something. Uh, one thing I really love, actually, in correspondence, uh, I, I, you know, I, I just could not ever have imagined the number of people all over the world who've written to me about this book. I thought it would, you know, a few people would like it, then it'd be forgotten. But anyway, I get very lovely emails. But, you know, quite often people say, I read five sentences and then I go out and get on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I ride around and think about it and I come back and read another few sentences. Now, I really like that because... I believe that, you know, what has been fruitful for me has often been reading things quite slowly and going back over them and making sure that they've had time to sort of bed into my mind. But our culture is all about grabbing things and getting them quickly and competing stimuli, which is never a good idea. I mean, that's just the way in which you will superficialize and trivialize everything you come across. So making slow time is really rather important. Um, and I, I, the, the issue of depth is quite important. Um, there are three ways in which the right hemisphere is deeper than the left. And these are literal. They're not, they're not just sort of fanciful speech. So the right hemisphere is what gives us depth in space. So the left hemisphere literally sees things two-dimensionally as though they're um, uh, projected on a screen. Two-dimensional space. Three-dimensional space, we depend on the right hemisphere for. And sometimes when people have had damage to the right hemisphere, they literally say, it's like living in a two-dimensional painting. I feel as though I could walk up to reality and take a corner and tear it off. You know, there'd be just a blank wall behind. The second is depth in time. And I, I can't convey quickly how important this one is, but it's like the difference between the idea of time as a river and the idea of time as a series of instants. So the left hemisphere sees whatever is continuous as simply a series of static moments, like a cine film that could really be seen all together at the same time. But um, it's just an illusion they run together you know but really they're separate now the reality i believe and certainly what the right hemisphere sees is that time has depth and thickness to it which is how it comes to be part of a cohesive picture of the world and the third is depth in emotion and this you know just is literally true people who have right hemisphere strokes their emotions become superficial um they become jokey and irritable without having depth of compassion or understanding or the things that really require what we think of as making up a full empathic human person. So that, that to me is striking because I think this issue of depth is a critical one for our age. I mean, we would never be called the age in which we saw into the depths. <laughs> uh, there was a famous book, of course, Nick Carr's The Shallows, which expands this idea, I think, correctly. If you think of an organization 
and leaders within an organization, they've probably got to the position they are in through their technical expertise. So left, left brain orientated expertise. And now there's a cry out for empathy, emotional intelligence and these type of things, which is good news because that's a holistic way of looking at an organization or, or looking at people or treating them people more than just cogs in the machine, treating them like human beings. And it's one of the things that really dawned on me through reading the book. But one analogy really works for people. And I'd love if you share that because you say animals and birds may not have the same problems posed by our frontal lobes to deal with but they do already experience competing needs. And this can be seen at one level in terms of the types of attention they are required to bring to bear on the world. And here you talk about birds in particular, because birds can be mapped very easily because their eyes are on the sides of their head. I'd love if you expanded on this, Ian. Yes, uh, the, the, what you're referring to there is that in humans, it's not as straightforward as that when you're using your left eye, it's going to your right hemisphere and vice versa. That's because our eyes are on the front of our head and it's the left visual field of each eye that goes to the right hemisphere and vice versa. But anyway, that's a technical point. But when it comes to um, most birds, other than birds of, of, of prey or birds like owls, they have their eyes on the sides of the head and they... Um, are able to see, uh, we are able to see rather when we look at them, which hemisphere they're using by looking at which eye they're using. And while um, a lot of the people in human psychology were going sort of, oh, there's no real hemisphere differences, that's all tacky and we, you know, uh, we, 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 we can't go there at all. It's, uh, that's all been blown up, it's all pop science. Well, basically, yes, the rubbish that was talked has been blown up, but that doesn't mean to say that there isn't some very important truth there, which is what I spent 20 years trying to, to find and which I report in, in the Master's Hemistry. But they had anyway gone on looking at birds and animals and looking at how they do use their hemispheres differently. And what they noticed was that they they have to solve this conundrum of how to manipulate the world and yet survive in it. And to do that, they need two types of attention. They need to be able to pay attention to a detail, to be able to see very precisely a seed on a background of grit or gravel and pick it up precisely, quickly, deftly before another. And that's fine. So they need very narrow beam attention to a detail. But if that's the only attention they pay, they'd never survive because while they were getting their lunch, they'd become somebody else's because all the time there are predators and they also need to be looking out for their, their families, for their conspecifics, for the little ones that are also feeding with them and so forth. So they need to see the whole picture as well as little tiny bits of it. And this is an impossibility with one uh, center of consciousness. You would need two centers of consciousness because attention is the way you dispose your center of consciousness. And you need to dispose it in two completely incompatible ways at the same time. Nature's solution to this is two. And it's not just we or mammals or reptiles or birds or whatever that have this arrangement. Every living thing that has any kind of neural network has an asymmetrical one, down to the most ancient creature that we know of, 700 million years old, living off the Isle of Wight, <laughs> Um, where I like to joke that it's just about the average age for the Isle of Wight. Um, and it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th that aside, its neural network is already asymmetrical because all creatures have to solve this conundrum. Now, clearly, 
What you don't want is the one that sees little bits and gets stuff for you to become the ruler. You want the one that sees the big picture to be your guide. But we live in a world in which we've got so addicted to grabbing and getting and what is efficient in you know, basically getting stuff first um, that we have become stupid. Uh, we haven't seen what it is we're doing to ourselves and to everybody because, of course, we can't exempt ourselves. We think in this crass sort of way that, oh, well, we'll be all right. We'll never be all right. Um, we can't separate ourselves from the fate of humanity and the fate still more of the planet and other animals and living things in general. So that is a distinction that is made between the ways in which the two hemispheres get used evolutionarily. And it explains to me why we have these two centers that operate in such a different way. The real uh, kicker for me is that is to go from, yes, they have different attention, and every neurologist everywhere in the world will, will, will confirm this, that they do have different attention. The real um, payoff of this is knowing that if they have different attention, then they see a different world. That was where I was able to bring reading of philosophy together with the stuff, the hard neurology, and see that if it is neurologically indisputably true that there's these two ways of paying attention, there are also two worlds in which we live. Now, you may say, well, it doesn't seem to me like we live in two worlds. I'm not aware of that at all. Well, of course you're not aware of it, because if you were, you wouldn't be able to get anything done. So all this synthesizing and directing of your attention at millisecond to millisecond level from one to the other is going on at a level well below consciousness at the top of the brainstem in fact in what's called the midbrain you know i thought a, a nice way to wrap up today's show and i hope we'll do another one in the future i really i've really enjoyed it and by the way you mentioned about somebody reading five lines of the book and going off and let it marinate i've been one of those people by the way so i i i didn't get through it all i actually only got part <laughs> through part one uh bringing me up to the shaping of the western world that's quite an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. Absolutely enjoyable achievement as well. But it's one of these books that I mean, now I'm going to keep coming back to and get something new every time I revisit it. But I love the way you put the following. And I thought it was a nice way to wrap up. And it goes like this is a quote from the book. If one had to encapsulate the principal differences in the experience mediated by the two hemispheres, their two modes of being, one could put it like this. The world of the left hemisphere, dependent on denotative language and abstraction, yields clarity and power to manipulate things that are known, fixed, static, isolated, decontextualized, explicit, disembodied, general in nature, but ultimately lifeless. The right hemisphere, by contrast, yields a world of individual, changing, evolving, interconnected, implicit, incarnate, living beings within the context of the lived world, but in the nature of things never fully graspable imperfectly known and to this world exists in a relationship of care the knowledge that is mediated by the left hemisphere is knowledge within a closed system it has the advantage of perfection but such perfection is brought ultimately at the price of emptiness of self-reference i thought that absolutely encapsulate how far i've read ian and i thought that'd be a nice way just to open it up for you to close today's show 
Well, thank you very much. Yes, I mean, that was my attempt to put succinctly what the difference is. And uh, interestingly, that was um, part of, um, I used that anyway, in a talk I gave at the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts in London, fairly soon after the book came out. And they made a cartoon uh, of it, an animation, as they would say. And I said to them, please don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> because this business of this hemispheres, you know, is, is thought to be so, um, you know, easily trivialized. I don't really want that. And they said, no, no, look, listen, look, the guy who's done it has read your book and we think he really gets it. So let's, you know, do it. So anyway, he, he did this animation and I think it's very good. So I always say to people, if they want to spend 10 minutes just getting an idea of what I'm on about, the best place to start is with those 10 minutes, you know? Um, and it's taken out of a 25-minute talk, which is also on YouTube, so you can easily see that. But that has done more to reach people probably than than anything. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I really ought to get much better at um, popularizing what I'm doing. In fact, I have a group of friends who are at this moment scheming to, to do just that. But I, I don't do social media and I won't do social media because my life would be unlivable if I did. And I wouldn't be able to to do the thinking and writing and, 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 the, and the, the sheer sort of peace necessitating things that I do if I if I was involved in all that but um, I do have a website um, and on it there are links to a whole range of talks I'm in um, two feature-length films one uh, is a thoroughly beautiful film a very deep one about what we are doing to ancient um, peoples basically exterminating them in the interests of greed. It's called Tawai, and it's by Bruce Parry, who has quite a, a reputation. He did a series for the BBC called Tribe about living with a prehistoric, as it were, tribe and what it was like. And that film is Tawai, which is a word which means the voice from the forest, T-A-W-A-I. And in it, um, Bruce has some conversations with me. The DVD has um, some takeouts of conversation, which I must say I rather like, and I think also form a good introduction to my thinking. Um, there wasn't room for them in the whole film. Um, and then there is a film called The Divided Brain, which was released, is only just being released in Canada, made by a Canadian team, which I hope people will see and I hope may get onto television. But I'm rapidly seeing that actually doing talks on YouTube is about as important as anything. And, you know, just the fact that I have done now quite a lot of such talks and podcasts um, helps helps a good deal. It was great that I just happened to meet Jordan Peterson in London. I, I knew not a lot about him. I hadn't read anything of his at that stage. He hadn't read anything of mine at that stage, but we, we knew of one another and liked what we knew. And he was very busy. He was just giving a talk in London. I happened to be there because I live on the Isle of Skye, so 700 miles from London. And uh, so Jonathan Rousen at the RSA said, oh, come along, come along. We'll have a conversation between the two of you. And so we did. And we had no time to discuss it. We had like 30 seconds to sit down 
down and they just said, shoot, we had no idea what we were going to say. And we had this half hour conversation and partly because it's totally unprepared and completely off the wall. Um, it has a certain something <laughs> which people seem to have liked because it's had a, a, a lot of views. So in, in one way or another, I find that, you know, there is there is a lot of interest. One thing that pleases me a lot is scientists are fairly, you know, uh, conventional people. They want to know why something is wrong first rather than accept a new idea, which is how science should work. But I now find a, a very good solid body of very highly respected people in the world of neuropsychology and neuroscience who are very interested in my work and and that along with the the general general readers interests and and so on is is you know for me encouragement the book that I'm now writing, which is, as I say, called, um, I think it'll be called anyway, my editor doesn't know that yet, The Matter with Things. <laughs> um, I'm taking the what I've just been talking about into examining, you know, what we know about the world, how we think we know it, and what we can rely on as probably more true than anything else. Um, so that is... That's my last big word, I think, on the state of things. And it's my ambition to write after that one or two very short books without tons of footnotes and bibliography. But there we are. You've got to keep writing until that wave hits. <laughs> so there we are. But, but uh, we... we yeah, enjoyed, it's fantastic. And, and I, I hope that we will have another conversation in, in due course. The website is ianmcgilchrist.com. Well, we celebrate changemakers on the show, Ian, and you were someone who went against popular convention to develop this work. At the time you wrote the book, enthusiasm for finding the key to hemisphere differences had waned, and it was not respectable for a neuroscientist to hypothesize on the subject, and you did it anyway. So for that... I thank you, we thank you, and for those of you who have stuck with us all the way to here, th to this point of the show, bravo, and you will love Ian's book. It's one of the best books I've ever read, and I, as I mentioned, I'll revisit it time and time again, and then add on the new lens of your new work as well. So Ian McGilchrist, prized polymath and author of The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain <laughs> and the Making of the Western World, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you very much, Aidan. It's been a real pleasure.